likely next year there'll be grade six. Then the ARC uh, Bible Camp is for that age group. So it's, if, you are, if you have a child going into grade six, and having had, uh, I think, three of my children, if not four of them, actually go to the ARC and go through, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Because for this reason, um, is it's not just a Bible um, kind of camp for your kid, what actually happens is when your child or grandchild or niece, nephew or what, whatever it might be goes to this camp, they actually get placed in a cabin and there's nothing unusual with that with a couple of leaders, but those leaders have actually been prayed over and chosen that your child then will stay with those leaders week in, week out until they graduate in grade 12. So just think about that. My, my sons and, and with Zoe as well have been through this care group. Uh, system that from a very young age they go through and every other week they meet in small groups as well as large groups but it starts at the ARC Bible camp and so and then what happens in grade 11 or 12 uh, this happened with Zoe and Luke and I'm believing we'll, we'll with Jack as well is that they then start leading their own group and it just continues and that's why we have almost 900 young people in our youth group because they're being discipled week in week out and it starts at Bible camp at the ARC. So if you have a child who's in grade five, six, seven, eight, whatever it might be, and they've not yet gone to the ark, um, it's not too late. If they're older than grade six, they will still get plugged in. I can't recommend it highly enough. By experience, it's a wonderful thing. Okay, let's, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter six. Last week, we started our new series, uh, Teach Us to Pray. And, uh, and I said last week that it's the number one, prayer is the number one way in which we join in with God's revolution of seeing transformation happen in our world. There is nothing more important than a Christian's prayer life and the regularity and what we do in our prayer life. It's the number one way that we join in with what God is doing over and above anything else we can think of in ministry. Prayer is number one. And so this week, we're actually going to start jumping into, uh, and I said we would teach line by line, word by word sometimes, uh, through uh, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so we're going to jump into that, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses to get us started, and then we're going to pray. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they have heard uh, for them, for the, they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, over the last seven years, as I've spoken uh, most weekends in this church or at 33 or as part of the network, then we have not been afraid to tackle difficult subjects, subjects that have in many ways created conversations that actually uh, kind of um, bump into experiences or theological beliefs that we might have um, whether it be predestination or all these kind of big ones that, okay, you know, I have very firm beliefs about that. And we, and we kind of chew on it, we think about it, and we have good conversation. And, and in many ways, a lot of preachers and pastors will avoid those topics because of the tendency to actually be a bit of an affront to what we think is true. But I would say what I'm going to speak on today is actually more of an affront to us in many ways than any kind of hot topic that I could choose. 
because what those other things do is they can actually uh, kind of slam into thoughts that we might have, whereas this topic today actually can be contrary to very deep-seated emotional experiences that we've had. And because of that, it's very difficult for me to come to this message with huge confidence that I'm going to be able to convince you of anything at all because this topic really, uh, more than perhaps any other across the Lord's Prayer, is going to be one that actually we need the Spirit of God to bring change into your life. That God needs to give a revelation of this because this topic is one that I personally really struggle with. And as you know, if you've been coming to the South a number of years and you've heard me preach, I'm not afraid to say, hey, I struggle with this. And I'm going to tell you from the, front, from the front, I really struggle with this topic. And you'll see as we get going why that might be. And I think that many of you, if not all of you, will be able to resonate in some way. But before we jump in, I want to pray through a scripture in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's verse 17. It's not going to appear, but I, I recommend you write it down. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 is one of Paul's prayers that he prays uh, in, uh, towards the Ephesus church. And it's this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. There is no subject that more that needs this, uh, this prayer answered more, that we would have an intimate understanding and revelation of the knowledge of God the Father. We get an insight into how he thinks, an insight as to how he feels towards us, his children. And the scripture in Ephesians 1 says it is a gift that he may give you this spirit of wisdom and revelation. It doesn't say good preaching would give you this spirit of wisdom and revelation. Convincing words. It's that God himself will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. So let's pray to that end, please, before we jump into this teaching. Lord, we come to you humbly, recognizing that you are God the Father of glory. That, Lord, there is nothing more glorious, more ultimate, more beautiful than you. That, Lord, the power that surrounds you, your might, that you are truly almighty God and you are worthy of all our praise and all our attention. And that, Lord, your will is ultimate. And all these phrases, Lord, can create this sense of distance from you And yet, Lord, you say your children can come and they can intimately know you. And so, Lord, I pray now in the name of Jesus, before I jump into this this difficult topic, that, Lord, that you would give us the ability to hear from you. That, Lord, just as your scripture says, we stand on the shoulders of the Apostle Paul as he prays that, God, that you would give us a revelation of the understanding and and that we might have an intimate knowledge of you today, your heart, your ways, your thoughts, that, Lord, you would give us an insight into that. Lord, your word says that your thoughts and your ways are so much higher than ours. So, Lord, in the light of that truth, I pray that you would give us the gift of revelation now that we might get some inkling and some insight of those mysteries. We ask these things in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Father. Our Father. It's been said that the whole Bible can be summed up by those, that one word, Father. 
And as soon as Jesus started to pray this, it would have been an incredible and astounding shock to those people who were listening. When he said, when you pray, pray like this, he would say, our Father. And the reason that it was so shocking is that the word Father means, in, in Aramaic, it's the word Abba. And we've heard this a lot. For those of you who are old enough, and I certainly am, you'll maybe immediately think about Abba, the, the group Abba, uh, that I grew up with and listening to and being impacted and you know and you think of that that it's so much more than that it literally means papa it means dada means daddy and don't immediately think that therefore it's a word that young children only would use in fact more and more now evidence shows us that yes young children would use it just like a baby's first words dada but also in their culture it would have been a word that the adults would have used reverently and intimately towards their dad it's like daddy sometimes my uh, my kids call me all sorts of different words all of which are positive at least in my hearing uh, father reverend is luke's favorite he actually is on, it's on his phone as Father Reverend, and, uh, which I'm always, uh, and he, sometimes he calls me uh, Papa, which I think is more just, again, just to make me smile and real. So he calls me Daddy, and kids call me Dad, and there's all sorts of, though it's all within my hearing, at least. I'm sure there are other words at other times in our home that I have been called. But all of them, I hope, are terms of endearment. So here's why this would have been so shocking. It's easy for us to read this prayer and go, well, yeah, our Father. It starts with our Father, no big deal. It's the Lord's Prayer, perhaps the most famous passage of Scripture along with Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer. What's the big deal? The reality is, is that Jesus was really saying, and, it's, and, really, and the Scriptures say it's the first time in Scripture that God has been referred to by somebody as Father, Dada. It would have been mind-blowing for them. And if we just take pause and think about it, it evokes a powerful response then. It probably evokes a very powerful response now. Because as soon as I mention the word dad, to some of you, many of you, then there's all sorts of emotions that rise up. For some of you, none of those are positive. In fact, for some of you, you never knew your dad. Or a dad is somebody in your lifetime that you remember who just left you. Or was at home and you never saw. Or when they were at home, they were abusive. Or as you grew up, there was just this distance between the two of you. And so when you say approach, and it's easy for me to say, you know, just approach God as your dad. Actually, that's probably the worst way in which I could say, humanly speaking, that you need to approach God. Because you would immediately start seeing God like you, start seeing your, like you already see your own father. And that's shocking. The other side is you may have had a wonderful experience with your dad and, and, and a lovely upbringing. And, and, you know, and I, many of you in the room who could certainly attest to that being the truth. Either way, Jesus is very purposefully starting this passage, this prayer, when he says, pray like this, come to God like he's your dad, your papa, your papa. That intimacy He doesn't start by saying, oh, Lord God, creator. 
Almighty God, you are Lord and King. He doesn't say that. He could have. He, he purposely starts. And Scripture, the order of Scripture is very, very important. This is opening statement. It's upon this statement that the rest of this prayer happens. He's basically saying this. Your whole prayer life, everything that you do approaching God has to be upon the basis of you seeing God as your dad. And if you were in a prayer meeting and you heard me or somebody else start your prayer by going, Dad, I'm having a real rough day, it would be a jolt inside. You go, well, that's weird, I would imagine. It evokes a powerful response. But we need to experience God as our dad to pray effectively. We need to experience God as dad to pray effectively. And I believe that's coming up on the screen. We need to experience God as our dada to pray effectively. That is what you're going to see and hear from me this morning. That there's this confidence, this intimacy that children have around their parents. They're unapologetic to the point of it actually being quite worrying for those of you who have children or certainly have children in your life. You know that, that children approach their parents not, not particularly subtly sometimes. They approach life in a very confident way. And so Jesus is saying, approach God in this confidence. You are his child. I have so many stories that I could share of ways and times in the last 23 years that I could uh, give you examples of the confidence and the panic that has evoked into my own life with my own children's ability to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, come what may, especially when they were little. I remember one particular time as visiting my grandmother and my grandmum I have, I have spoken about before from this stage. She was, a, um, she was a, uh, a lady which evoked a deep uh, feeling of fear and panic. She was like four foot ten and she was a force to be reckoned with. And I remember every time we would go to her house, it would be done with some kind of fear and trepidation because it was just the way she was. And I remember taking Zoe and Luke, and Zoe was maybe uh, four, Luke was two, maybe a little bit younger, three and one, whatever. And we took them, and as best as we could, you know, you grab hold of their little heads gently and go, listen, you listen to what mummy and daddy says, especially this afternoon. We'll give you whatever you want. You, you know, all kind of semblance of good parenting goes out of the window, right? You bribe, you threaten, whatever. It's like, okay, just do you need to be on your best behavior? And I remember sitting in our front room and then the panic welled up within me because I realized as we're sat in grandma's front room, which is, makes perfect look like I'm imagining Buckingham Palace can learn stuff from my grandma's front room. It is perfect. Her house is perfect. And I noticed that, you know, there's this miscommunication that happens with parents because you know how you, you kind of, uh, you tag team. Okay, you, you're looking after the kids now. I can just relax. And then Sarah will look at me. Okay, it's your turn. She's going to relax. And I think there was a bit of miscommunication because suddenly the kids were not there. They weren't in the front room. And so I was like, I'm just, just going mean, to, we don't call it the washroom in Britain. I'm just, just going to go to the toilet because uh, it kind of already was in some ways. Leave the room. And I start looking for Zoe and Luke. I go in their back, the backyard. I go into the kitchen. I go into these different rooms all around the house. Could not find them anywhere. I'm starting to panic because I realize there's only one more place in which I haven't looked, which was grandma's bedroom. And so I go into the bedroom and there is Zoe and Luke on, uh, in her bed, bouncing up and down underneath the duvets. 
pillows all over the place. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Sarah, why did you let this happen? <laughs> so I get them out. You know how you do everything. And now I've got to put this bedroom back together. She knew. I know to this day, I know she would have found out later. She never said anything, but I'm sure it was written down. Children just have this confidence, this edge to them. And there's this weird tension when we come as Christians that we should approach God as, the, as, as one whom is on his throne, surrounded by, the Bible says, myriad upon myriad of angels, all shouting, worthy, 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 holy is your name. And so there's this incredible magnitude of God's presence and glory. And yet he says, come to me as dad. And we live in this tension. You see, Jesus loved to withdraw we, read, we, we talked about this last week. And I re- believe that the reason he loved to withdraw is not because he, lo- he, wa- he needed to, but because he wanted to spend time with his dad. He wanted to, forgive me for putting it this way, and this is going to be difficult for some of you, he wanted to hang out with his dad. And then his view of his dad and how his dad saw him actually worked through his words. It affected his identity, affected his actions, everything. His whole life flowed out of the truth that he was loved and accepted by his Abba. And our experience of prayer is dictated, our experience in life, our experience of Christianity. Please listen, this is so important, is dictated by how we answer the question, do we relate to God intimately like he is our Abba? It flows into every aspect, how you pray, how you work, how you speak, how you react, how you see Christianity. And so to start us off, I want to ask a deep and important question is this. Number one, are we living like an orphan or are we living like a child? See, Matthew 6 and verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they will think they have heard for their many words. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out here. Jesus, all through the Sermon on the Mount and in this passage, is actually speaking to two different sets of people. It's not non-Christians and Christians. He's speaking to orphans and children. He's speaking to people who have actually got an experience of Christianity or or God. And the reason I know that is all through the passage, he says things like this. And you can see it here. When you pray. Not if you pray. When you pray. When you pray. He says, when you fast. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see this assumption that Jesus has. I know you already do things. I'm more interested in how you do these things. How are you approaching these things? And so today, as I look out to you, and this is where it's difficult for me to receive this too, are we living like orphans, even though we're children? See, there are those who know God as Abba, and those that don't. Do you know God as Abba. Whether you're a Christian or whether you are kind of searching and on a journey, do you know God as an Abba? Because listen again, this scripture is very important. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Why do these people think that God is going to listen to them? Why do they think that God is going to have a relationship? It's for their many words. 
See, those, that statement, for their many words, tells us that they believe that God is... This is so important. Just stay with me for a second. They believe that God is listening to them and in relationship with them for their many words. So what they do is dictating whether God is in relationship with them. God is relating to us, we believe many times, because of how well we do. Now, we know that's not true. We'll say that, but I'm not interested in what we say. I'm interested in actually how does this play out in our life? Do we live in such a way where we know that God, God our Abba, relates to us not because of what we have done or what we do, but because of who he is and what Jesus has done on the cross? And we believe that somehow God is relating to us because of how well we do. And I can prove that to you. We believe that somehow God is displeased and annoyed with us. That he's leaning away from us rather than leaning in towards us. That he has this air of displeasure and annoyance. That there's this, oh gosh, I knew you would mess up again. And we have this feeling because when we do mess up, what's our immediate response? Do we go running to our Abba? Or do we run away believing that God does not want to be near us? That yes, he has to love us, but right now he doesn't like me because I have done this, fill in the blank. Maybe it's something that you habitually do, day in, day out, that you think you've got nailed, you think is sorted. Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's something connected to lust, maybe it's something connected to your ambition or selfishness, whatever it might be, that you believe that yes, I think I come come to God and I ask for forgiveness and I'm going to work hard again at this, only to discover you mess up and then you withdraw from God. That in itself is proof that we do not see God as our Abba. In her book, Nothing is Impossible with God, the author Rose Miller describes how we are children, but we often act like we are orphans. She says, orphans have to take care of themselves. So ask yourself the question, are you an orphan or a child? Orphans have to take care of themselves. Children, children of God, rely on Jehovah Jireh for their needs. Orphans must be strong. I can do this. Whereas children recognize their weakness and rely on Jesus' strength more and more and themselves less and less. Because if you're living like an orphan and you believe it all ends on you, then very quickly you're going to find out that life is full of despair and shame and guilt because when something goes wrong, if it's all down to you, then you will live under the shadow of that guilt. That's orphan mentality. Orphans must protect themselves, whereas children of God rely on the protection from God the Father. Orphans cannot bear criticism. They're crushed when they don't succeed. Children rely on how God the Father sees on them, sees them and, and on Jesus' record for them. Orphans crave to be taken in and loved, but doubt they ever will. Children are secure in the acceptance and approval that comes from being his. I'm going to say that one again. Because I just felt as I read it that I should. Orphans crave to be taken in and loved, but doubt they ever will. Because their experience says, why would anybody love me? Whereas children are secure in the acceptance and approval that comes from being his. Orphans want to be accepted, to belong. Children, even if they are alone, all is well. I have Jesus. 
Orphans are self-focused and selfish. A child is secure to look outside of themselves, that life does not terminate on their needs alone. And maybe some of you, as you listen to that list, can resonate with this statement that I am a child of God, but I live like an orphan, like I have no loving father. Do we live believing that we have a loving father? Do we live with the lens and the filter, believing that God loves us regardless of what we do? Do we live in that way? Do we speak in that way? Do we parent in that way? Do we, do we have employees in that way? Do we, do we apply this belief that God, my Father, is my Abba? Or do we believe deep down inside it's down to what you do that actually dictates God's response by their many words, Jesus said. They believe that they will be heard. Whereas children are heard because they're children. In fact... And it's an old saying, but it's very true, and it goes quiet, is when you know there's trouble, right? A noisy house may well be a very broken physically house, but, you know, at least you know where they are. I remember vividly holding each of my children after they were born, and I don't ever remember holding this beautiful daughter and saying, well, let's see how she turns out before I decide whether I love her or not. I mean, how callous would that be? We listen to them more than we should when they're very small. We spend time with them. We dedicate ourselves to them regardless of what they do because let's think about what they do when they're that big. It ain't that pleasant. They do nothing really to contribute to the family apart from make strange smells and lots of noise. And yet, we love them. It's not, well, let's see... I remember in the very first days of pastoring this church, I used to say this statement, and maybe God convicted me this week, I need to say it more. It's okay not to be okay in this church. More so, it's okay not to be okay with God, because God is not in love with a future, better version of you. He is not in love with a future version of you. He loves you now. In fact, it says, while we were still sinners, while we were still screwing up, while we had the mentality and disregarded God and running away from Him, He loved us. He sent His Son to die for us. It's that Father, heart, Abba of God. He's waiting to hear from me because He loves me. But that just doesn't seem right, does it? It's okay for us to think about our own children in that way. But when it comes to me and God, it just seems like that's not right. How is it that God can relate to me in that way? Because I know who I am. And I know the mess ups I've done. And I know the thoughts and the the plans and all these things that are contrary to what I know the Bible said is true and good for me. How on earth is it that God can look at me and go, yeah, I, I love you, Glenn. That the greatest gift to me is that I am able to say and experience Abba. That is the greatest gift that God has ever given me. But it's a gift. It's by faith. Not by works. 
Some of you may have come out of a religion or a belief system that says what you do and what you say and how you think will dictate whether or not you'll be blessed. And by the way, those who would say classically, I'm not religious, but go to yoga and believe in spirituality and you know, rub crystals on your forehead or whatever it might be that our world says is okay, you are still working in order to gain something. I'm going to stretch this thing out for the next 25 minutes so that I can feel a blessing and a centeredness. It's exactly the same. You are still working in order to receive something. And what God the Father Abba says, you are unable, not able to work hard enough to close the gap between me and my perfection and you and your sin. So here's what I will do. I will send my son Jesus and he will work on the cross for you and you receive it as a gift. So we don't owe God because somehow we think, is, are we daft enough to believe there's anything that I can do that is going to close the gap between my sin and his perfection? Like, Glenn, grow up. No. So I put that aside and I say, it's a gift. It's a gift. And that's why it's good news. Does this little baby deserve my love? Arguably, No. Zoe, Luke, Jack, Amber, do not deserve my love when they're little babies. But I love them. And they have incredible access to me. And even if they stray, my heart aches after them. I think about them all the time. And if I'm capable of that same intimate experience with my children, how much more, the Bible says, is God the Father towards you and I? That if you have come to him and you can honestly say that you have submitted your life to him, then you have confessed. You said, Lord, I need you. I recognize your sacrifice for me. Then you are his child. Do we honestly believe, though, that God likes us? Not just loves us, but likes us. Not that he has to, has to love us theologically because those are the rules he's made. But he actually is committed to you. That, he has, that you have his attention. You have his time. You have his love because you are his child. That's why I struggle with this. Because I believe I can wrap my head around God loving me. But that he rejoices and likes me as well. Like he would be that dad who would be showing pictures of his kids to everybody if they stood around long enough. And here they are playing soccer. And here they are playing basketball. And here they are covered in poop. And there they are, you know, just like if you, oh gosh, he is that dad. Now you might go, oh, I don't like that kind of language. But it's the truth. That is Abba. That is Abba. And if you start reading the scriptures through that lens, you will see that they are filled with emotional responses to his children. He loves you, my friend, more than you will ever know, more than you will ever comprehend this side of eternity. And it's sheer pride often that stops that saturating our life. So how can this be? Number two, the child's position. In John 1, in verse 12, it says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Gave the right to become children of God. To all who received him. So that has to ask, we have to ask a question there. Have you received him? 
Because this prayer cannot be prayed by everybody. Not everybody, perhaps, even in this room that can say our Father. In some sense, the Scripture teaches that we are all His children. But the Scripture also says you can be a child without having any relationship with the Father. And we know that to be true. So do you have that relationship? Because it comes through Jesus giving us the right to become children of God. Us coming to the cross, recognizing that we cannot fix ourselves. And that only through God, through Jesus, we can have access to God. Galatians 3 and verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So really quickly, really quickly, this is touching upon a doctrine called adoption. The idea, and and, and oftentimes, there's a word here, it says all sons. Oftentimes, when it's biblically appropriate, I I will change the word sons and use children. And, and make it kind of gender equal. But in this verse, I can't because it's specifically talking about a significant event that would happen often in Roman culture. And Paul is painting a picture. And what it is is this, that when a rich man didn't have a firstborn son, they would go and literally they would purchase a son, a slave if you like, bring them into the family and give this new son the inheritance, this firstborn son, that he would now be an heir because look in Galatians, 3, 20, uh, sorry, in Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are sons in the viewpoint, whether you're a female or male, you are a son in the viewpoint of the way that God looks at you as firstborn son. Because this same passage actually does away with the idea that there's a discrimination between male and female, slave and free, we're sons. You are in the family. And if you approach the Lord's Prayer as you pray through the lens of knowing you're in the family, knowing that you have an inheritance and an acceptance and a love from God the Father, it changes the way that we speak. It changes the way that we pray. We don't have this idea that somehow God is not interested. He is interesting. An overwhelming encouragement and security floods into our minds, into our hearts and our lives, and we start living like we have an Abba. We have a a, a God who loves us. I heard a lovely illustration this week that I think touches upon the magnitude of this. And it's imagine if you have a trillion dollars in the bank. And then you drop five bucks. And as you bend down to pick this five bucks up, maybe you would just think, actually, it's not my worth my effort. I don't know. But as you bend down to pick this up, somebody comes running, grabs the five dollars and runs off. If you had a trillion dollars in your account, what would your response be? You'd probably momentarily perhaps go, Ooh, you cheek. How rude. But it's not going to break you. (laughs) Because you've got a trillion dollars. You know that you're still secure. Everything will be wonderful. Everything will still be blessed. It all will be well in the world, even though you don't have that $5. So what has that got to do with our life? If we truly believe that we have an Abba Father, that he loves us, that we have this inheritance, that we're in the family, that when somebody criticizes you, when somebody looks at you and lies to you or hurts you or leaves you out, you go, that's okay, because I have everything I need. 
So when you don't get that promotion, it's okay because I have everything I need. If that relationship breaks apart, I have something so much better. When something happens that is outside of our control, it's okay because we believe that God the Father still loves us. And even though we might not be able to have the absolute answer at that moment as to why, we believe truthfully that we're still blessed and we're still okay. Do you have, friends, do you have that freedom? Because that's what Abba Father means. We can come to Him in confidence. So let's just do a thought exercise. Let's just imagine that God is actually our Father. He loves us like a dad. Let's just imagine what I say to be true. That we have the best, most loving and attentive dad who's full of compassion. He never leaves us. He supplies all our needs. He enjoys and likes us and just enjoys being around us. He's waiting for us to return when we stray. Not just waiting, but watching for us to return when we grow distant from him. Not just watching, but actually willing to run towards us, hold us, and embrace us, and tell us, this is my child. Imagine we had a dad who loves us and wants us more than we want him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If it was true? For those of you who never had that dad, through Christ, that is yours. It is true. For those who believe in Jesus, for those who submit their life to him, it is true that God Almighty is our Abba and we should turn and trust him. But in verse 8, Jesus says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you have before you ask him. So if all this is true, why do we pray? Well, my third point, my final point is this, is that feel, is, it's about feelings, belief, and reality. The question of why do we pray? Because if God is our God, and this scripture says that he knows what we have uh, need of before we ask him, why does Jesus say when you pray? Why pray? What's the point? Because if he already knows, then why am I opening my mouth to tell him? Well, first of all, The Bible says, as children of God, we're commanded to pray. So it's our sheer obedience, but that's no fun. Something you have to do is never something that we necessarily want to do. But I think we need to get this idea out of our minds that somehow we're instructing or enlightening God on what's happening in the world. Think of it this way. And I've used this illustration before. And I've used it many times. But think of a child who goes to preschool and at the end of the day, you're there as a mum or a dad. You've not seen them all day and this little one comes running in, throws their backpack into the corner. It's covered in stuff all over their face, you know, and, and they're just excited to be home. And you've got a good idea of what they've done all day. In fact, you might know exactly what they've done all day. Maybe they had a sports day or maybe they went on a school trip. So you already know what their life is filled with. But what is it that a good dad or a good mum wants? Come, come to me and tell me, what did you do today? What did you do? And then this little one just starts telling you all the different bits and pieces and you ask questions and there's this communication and connection. That is what prayer is about Because what is actually happening is the child is not instructing because the dad or the mum is in vacant need. 
But actually, it's more about the child at that moment, that the child, him or herself, is growing in love and attention and connection with their parent. Prayer is exactly the same. So we might not feel like God is our Father, but as we, and forget, you might not like this word picture, but as we come and we sit on His knee, and we share what is going on in our world, Nothing is a surprise to him because the Bible says he knows the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He knows intimately even more depth than you do. But he wants to hear from you, not because he's needy of us, but because for us, he loves us so much that that process, that conversation, that connection, that prayer actually fills us, changes us, develops us, grows us. So prayer is more about us than it is about God the Father. We can have that nearness and joy and love and security. And what does that look like sometimes? Sometimes it's just, God, I don't even know what to say. I just want to sit. I just want to thank you. Richard Forster said this, His heart is the most sensitive and tender of all. No act goes unnoticed, no matter how insignificant or small. A cup of cold water is enough to put tears in the eyes of God. Like the proud mother who is thrilled to receive a bouquet of wilted dandelions from her child, so God celebrates our feeble expressions of gratitude. Luke made this for me. It says, Dad, you rock at being a dad from Luke. He did it in his grad class, and I think it's very good. (laughs) We paid good money for KCS. Thank you, Scott. I think it was grade two. Do you recognize this, Scott? Is this part, did, no, this must have been at PA, maybe. So when Luke gives me this, I go, oh, great. Rubbish. I mean, you've barely spelt rock right. No, he did, to be fair, and he underlined it. And you've missed a bit, and your coloring's a bit dodgy. It's just not very good, son, I'm sorry. You did your best, but maybe next year. That's how we think when we think of God. Whereas when Luke gives me this, and it's in, it's in my study at home, it's like, oh, this is great. And other people might go, oh, it's not, it's rubbish. But it's from my son. And I've got all sorts of notes and things from my kids over the years. You see, God loves that connection. It's why Jesus withdrew so much. And prayer is taking our feelings into the presence of God and our feelings then follow, our, our, our attention and belief changes our feelings. So here's what our Father looks like. And we said uh, last week that you could take a statement each day. So Sunday, our Father. What does that look like for you in your prayer life? You might have a broken, awful, abusive relationship with your Father on earth. You may have memories of that. It might be that you just don't have, you just don't, no, I just don't have anything really when I think about my dad. Maybe you have a great relationship with your dad, whatever it might be. You come to God the Father and with feelings that may be disjointed from him being Abba, but you put those aside and you say, God, this is how you pray. Thank you that you're my father. You pray through the different aspects of parenthood and father and apply it to God you thank Jesus for his his sacrifice that actually allows you to have this relationship with God the father and here's what will happen as you come to his presence and you thank him and you praise him we're going to talk more about this next week but as you thank him and praise him your feelings get replaced and overshadowed by belief and attention and your feelings start to change don't ever wait 
for your feelings to be different before you come approach your dad. Our Father, thank you, I don't deserve this. But I know you'll hear me. It's okay not to be okay. And so, at the end of my message, here's what I want to leave you with as an encouragement to spend time with your loving dad. If you're a Christian, let's start living like we're children, not as orphans. That it's okay not to be okay. That let's not live like our God doesn't love us, but let's live like we have a Father who loves us. And if you are not a child here today, then the opportunity, the gift of, of that freedom, that connection with God is yours to be had as well. As the Holy Spirit speaking to you, then you can come, even in our worship, or you can come and receive prayer at the end with one of our leaders. And you come, and I say, you know, I don't have that relationship with God would you pray for me maybe just in your own quiet moment you just breathe your thanks and you confess and you submit your life to Jesus and the Bible says he is just to forgive you and you can say our father dad so I want to challenge you this week every day I want you to put time aside to come and maybe you just spend a whole week praying our father my dad. Maybe you journal about what that might look like, but I want you to meditate and chew on our father, my father. Because if we do that, it will start changing the way we see ourselves. It will start changing the way we see others. Because we won't want their approval because we've already got his. We won't want their acceptance as priority, but we've already got his. It'll start changing you. So I'm going to pray now and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to sing a final song. But before we do that, maybe Sarah can start playing gently. We're just going to spend some moments just thinking about our Father. Just in your own moment, quietly, I want you to meditate and pray on our Father. And then I will pray.